Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we tell stories and have conversations that meet at the intersection of race and real life. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because today's episode could save your life. On episode 22 of My American Melting Pot, we're going to be talking about the sixth leading cause of death in America, Alzheimer's. And yes, we're going to mention statistics and studies, but because this is the melting pot, we're also going to be talking about Alzheimer's in communities of color, the toll of Alzheimer's on families and caregivers, and what we can all do to help bring more attention to finding a cure for this tragic disease that, quote, kills a loved one, not once, but twice. Joining me today to share in this conversation is journalist, award-winning author, and self-proclaimed Alzheimer's activist, Marita Golden. Marita is the author of 17 works of fiction and nonfiction, and her most recent titles both deal with Alzheimer's. The Wide Circumference of Love is a novel, and Us Against Alzheimer's is an anthology Golden edited that was released in September of this year. There's so much to talk about regarding this disease, and believe it or not, it's not all bad news. But before we can get to our conversation with Marita Golden, you know we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by transparency. Transparency. That means you stop hiding the truth. Transparency. Hello, Melting Pot community. Since today's episode is healthcare related, I thought I'd stay on that theme for our Melting Pot Minute. I decided to talk about Alzheimer's for this episode because November is National Alzheimer's Awareness Month. But did you know that November is also National Epilepsy Awareness Month? Here on My American Melting Pot, I always like to talk about culture and diversity. I like to make my audience aware of people, places, and things that they may not have known about, particularly if there's a multicultural angle involved, or if there's a marginalized voice that deserves to be heard. I feel that way about epilepsy. Epilepsy affects 3.4 million people in the United States and 65 million people worldwide. More people in the United States have epilepsy than multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, and Parkinson's combined. And yet, epilepsy is one of the least talked about and least understood major chronic medical conditions. It's like the unwanted stepchild of neurological disorders. What's more... The biggest non-medical issue people with epilepsy deal with is discrimination. Yes, discrimination. Discrimination in education, in employment, and social acceptance because of the stigma attached to the disease. And why stigma? Because people are afraid of epilepsy. Because having a seizure is still associated with demons and spirits in some cultures. Because Historically, epileptics were deemed to be of low intelligence and were actually experimented on in Nazi Germany. Epilepsy remains in the shadows, and it's underreported by people who suffer from the chronic condition, and therefore, it receives less attention for finding a cure. Why do I care so much about epilepsy awareness? Because, Melting Pot community, I have epilepsy. I was diagnosed as a teenager and have lived with it ever since. But like so many others, I've hidden my condition. In fact, this podcast is the first time I've ever gone public. And yeah, I'm still a little scared for what that means. Probably nothing for me personally, but I hope by my coming forward and sharing this information 
two things will happen. One, I hope other people who have epilepsy and have been too afraid to say something will do so. I live in an incredibly healthy, rich, and full life. Epilepsy hasn't stopped me from doing anything I've ever wanted to do, except maybe go to a disco with strobe lights. And I hope that my coming out will show people that epilepsy isn't a death sentence. And by the way, Charles Dickens, Agatha Christie, Leonardo da Vinci, and Socrates also had epilepsy. So we're all in pretty good company. The second thing I hope will happen is that if you ever do encounter someone with epilepsy, that you treat them with kindness and empathy, not fear or rejection. It is scary to see someone have a seizure, but it's the seizure that's scary, not the person. All right, Melting Pot community, I'm coming off my soapbox now. I'm a little nervous about what I just did, but I'm glad I did it. Happy Epilepsy Awareness Month. Now, Let's switch from epilepsy to Alzheimer's and get to our conversation with Marita Golden. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Marita Golden. Thank you. I'm I'm really glad to be on the show. I want to jump right into this because we have so much to cover and only about an hour. So I'm going to start out by quoting a couple of facts and statistics from your new book, Us Against Alzheimer's. So I know that Alzheimer's remains the only top 10 disease in the United States without an effective treatment or cure, affecting 5.8 million diagnosed patients and 16 million caregivers at a cost of $290 billion annually. I know that African-Americans are twice as likely and Latinos are 1.5 times as likely to have Alzheimer's as well. So with these kind of statistics, these kinds of facts, obviously there's so much to talk about when we talk about Alzheimer's. But I wanted to find out from you first, Marita, what brought you to care so much about Alzheimer's? Well, I don't have anyone in my family who has the disease. And I think that it's a kind of a natural assumption people would make that when they see that I've written a novel, a major piece of journalism, and now edit an anthology, that I must have a personal connection. But the genesis of my storytelling and my activism is basically it started with a story, a novel that I was writing that wasn't going anywhere. I had written about 100 pages. I had hit a dead end. And I stopped writing so that I could see what would happen next. And then after I stopped writing, several weeks later, the characters that had been in that novel found a new life in a new story, a new novel that, to my surprise, was a story about an African-American family living in Washington, D.C., dealing with Alzheimer's. And for a long time, I couldn't understand why I was writing about Alzheimer's, but I came to understand that because in my writing career, I've never been shy about writing about difficult, hard subjects. So this was simply another difficult, tough subject that I was really kind of called to write. And I think sometimes you really are called to write. There's a lot of mystery in the creative process. We don't always know exactly why, but it's been a a very enriching, very deeply important journey for me. 
When I introduced you earlier, I mentioned that you did write this novel, The Wide Circumference of Love, which is an amazing novel about an African-American family and they're dealing with when the father of the family gets Alzheimer's. And then you also have this amazing new anthology, Us Against Alzheimer's, stories of family, love, and faith. So what do you think it is that most people don't understand about Alzheimer's? Well, there's a lot that many of us, even the people who are researchers and scientists and doctors don't understand about Alzheimer's. But I think that for the general public, there can often be the mistaken feeling that Alzheimer's is a form of mental illness. When it is not mental illness, it is a brain disorder. And some people, particularly in the African-American community, sort of labor under the, the notion that it is a natural part of aging, but it is not. In past years, in the, quote, old days, what we now call Alzheimer's was called senility. And even then, it wasn't normal. That is, we knew many older people who were sharp, who were active, who had not suffered any brain diminishment. And then we knew older people who had. So I think the most common stereotypes are that, one, it's a form of mental illness, and two, that it's something natural, that naturally the older you get, this kind of brain diminishment will happen. But Alzheimer's, I like to tell people, it's not so much that you can't find your keys, but it's that when someone gives you the keys, you don't know what they're for. That's the difference between, you know, forgetfulness and brain diminishment, dementia, and Alzheimer's. Yeah, that's so good. And that's, you know, I never really thought about that, but you're so right that a lot of people assume that it's kind of inevitable, right? That that's what Mm -hmm. happens when you Mm -hmm. get older. One of the things that I really appreciated in your novel, The Wide Circumference of Love, and also in just reading some of the essays in Us Against Alzheimer's, is that another, I think, misconception or thing that people don't understand when we're talking about Alzheimer's is the toll that it takes on the family and the caregiver. I think you told me a statistic or something, and you know, please, you know, help me with this. But something how the the people who are taking care of somebody with Alzheimer's they they have a lower life expectancy, or something of that nature. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that, about that part of this story that I don't think people understand and realize the toll Alzheimer's takes on not just the person, but the family and the caregivers. Well, the statistic that you're referring to is the statistic that 70% of caregivers die before the person that they're actually caring for. Oh my gosh. And first to talk about dementia, dementia being a form of brain diminishment, that is the cells in the brain are essentially dying. And it can be caused by a stroke, a concussion. There's many different types of dementia. So you can develop dementia for many different reasons. The most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's is the most serious form of dementia. It is the form of dementia that gradually over time results in death. And what happens is The metaphor for forgetfulness is accurate in the sense that the body begins to forget how to function so that the longer a person lives with the disease over time, they will forget, for example, the body will forget how to be thirsty 
and therefore will not desire liquids. We'll forget how to be hungry. Don't desire food. We'll forget how to walk so that over time there is this sort of anatomical forgetting that results in death. Often it's pneumonia or some other infection. Now, the disease has wide-ranging impact because it really turns the life of the person with the disease upside down um, because they they forget who the most important people are in their lives. They forget who they are at this present moment. They forget how to perform normal tasks. And the job of the caregiver is to navigate life for this person whose life has been turned upside down. And it's almost sort of like a tax we pay on living so long, because even though it is not natural to develop Alzheimer's as you get older, the longer you live, the more likely you are to develop some form of dementia. So it's like yes and no, yin and yang. The stresses and strains on the caregiver are, of course, dealing with a person whose sense of reality has completely changed, whose sense of being in relationship with others has completely changed. And one of the most difficult things for caregivers is that we as a society offer so little support so that I'm living with a husband who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He may wander at night, all night long, okay? Um, he may suffer from insomnia. Um, he may go out of the house and, and disappear so that I'm living with a stranger. And one of the most uh, frustrating things is that when you go to the doctor, for example, you get an Alzheimer's diagnosis, too many doctors will give you the diagnosis, give you a prescription for drugs, and send you home. And caregivers are not connected with the vast array of services that they need. That is, caregivers have a 24-hour job because the person with Alzheimer's is almost like a child. So that how does the caregiver navigate their need for nourishment, emotional, physical rest with caring for this person who needs 24-hour care? And we're just now getting to the point where there are the kind of resources that caregivers need But what happens is so many caregivers are so overwhelmed by caring for their loved one that they often don't have the time to find the resources that are there for them. So that means that they're caring for their husband, they're caring for their brother. They're not going to the doctor to check their health. They're not getting sleep because the person they're caring for isn't getting sleep. So that it has this this really very, very negative impact physically, emotionally, psychologically on the lives and health of caregivers. Yeah, I feel like that was one of the big takeaways that I got from reading your books is just, I mean, not to suggest that the person who has Alzheimer's isn't suffering, but we have another group of people who are also suffering as the people who are caregivers. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I want to kind of shift focus a little bit on, you know, talking about um, how race and ethnicity dovetails into this conversation, because I think one of the things that people tend to think about when we think about Alzheimer's, um, the face of Alzheimer's seems to be like a white man or a white woman. And then you look at these statistics that 
African-Americans are twice as likely and Latinos are 1.5 times as likely to have Alzheimer's than their white counterparts. Can you talk a little bit about those numbers? Like why are African-Americans twice as likely to get Alzheimer's and Latinos 1.5 times more likely? And also, what does Alzheimer's look like in those two communities as opposed to the like Caucasian community, if you will? Well, when I started my research on the book back in 2013, you very rarely saw any face but the face of a an elderly white man on any commercials or anything to do with Alzheimer's. In the intervening years, you have begun to see occasionally more representations of Black people and Latinos and others representing the face of Alzheimer's, but still not to the extent that those communities are impacted by the disease. In the African-American community, one of the reasons that we have, we have a greater incidence of Alzheimer's, there's several reasons. One is that, well, everyone has a gene that gives them the possibility of developing Alzheimer's, just to make it very simple. We'll not give you the name of the gene. But, and then there's another gene that African-Americans have the APO07 gene that gives us an additional opportunity to develop the disease. Then you combine that with the fact that we have a long, long centuries old history in this country of our bodies being brutalized, our bodies bearing the scars and the results of our enslavement, the impact of segregation, the lack of access to good health care. And so our bodies are often the incubator for the most difficult diseases to a greater extent than others. African-Americans have more obesity, um, more high blood pressure, more diabetes, so that all of those types of diseases are diseases that kill the brain over time. It's like a perfect storm that has created both environments in our communities, which are bereft of, you know, the best hospitals. And we tend to live, for example, closer to toxic environments. We're closer to dumps and and toxic fumes so that everything in our experience as Americans has conspired to give us these terribly unhealthy bodies that incubate disease at a very high level. So there's the genetic link and then there's the environmental link. And so not only that, but then we are very underrepresented in the clinical trials that are seeking a cure for the disease. And what that means is that the drugs that are on the market to treat the symptoms of, of, of Alzheimer's that are currently on the market have not really been adequately tested on the African-American community. So that when we take those drugs that we get prescriptions from, from the doctors, it's almost like we're being guinea pigs. Culturally, in the African-American community, we tend to feel that it is better that we take care of our loved ones at home. I think that's part of our African tradition. I think it's also the fact that we have seen our loved ones cared for with indifference and malfeasance so often in healthcare institutions. And we want to protect them from that. So those two things make us feel that mom, dad, 
has to stay at home. The problem with that is that if mom and dad stay at home, somebody is going to have to probably quit their job or cut the time that they work in half or retire early. And when they do that, they're going to need a network of people in the family or outside the family to support them. It's very interesting. There was a study done contrasting white caregivers of people with dementia and black caregivers. And what they found was that black caregivers found the experience of caring for their loved ones more spiritually satisfying. Even as hard as it was, they found that they gained a spiritual connection with the person they were caring for in a way that whites did not necessarily feel that same deep, deep emotional connection. And whites are more likely to have the resources to find places like memory care units and other assisted care places that can take care of someone with dementia. But there's a definite cultural difference in how African-Americans respond to the diagnosis. And there's definitely different reasons why we have so much more of it and why it is sort of devastating our community. And would you say that those reasons are similar for the Latino community as well? Is oh, there yeah. A- it's, and it's, it's even worse there because what happens in the Latino community is many people in the Latino community do not speak English. And so that if you go to a doctor and the doctor doesn't speak Spanish, or if you go on the Internet and say you want to get information about Alzheimer's. It's all in English. If you want to be part of a clinical trial, it's all in English. So that the medical industrial complex has not responded to the fact that we are a multicultural nation. And that's one of the many ways in which we are unprepared really to deal with what's going to happen in the coming decades. And what is going to happen? I mean, we know that as of yet, there is no cure for Alzheimer's. There's no treatment, really. What do you think is at stake if we don't get a handle on this? Well, the the national, the, the budget is going to be completely busted. I mean, that is Medicare, Medicaid are going to just turn the, the national budget upside down in terms of the costs of caring for the disease. Also, there's simply not going to be enough nursing homes and memory care units and assisted living facilities for all of the people who are going to have dementia and Alzheimer's. So what that means is that the federal government is going to have to step up. Local governments, state governments are going to have to step up and provide financial and other forms of support for caregivers so that I know, for example, in some states, I think it's in New York state where if you are a caregiver for a person with Alzheimer's, the state will give you a stipend to help you with the expenses of caring for your mother or your father or your loved one. And that's going to have to become the model. And I I guess it's going to have to wait until some more of these congressmen develop Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever, because I know what the Affordable Care Act, many of them said, you know, I didn't realize how important this was until my granddaughter got sick. But this is a disease that fortunately, I will say, despite the Trump administration's efforts to gut 
the monies that go to NIH and NIA for research, Congress and the Senate basically have doubled the amount of research money. But there's still a lot more that needs to be done. This is a disease that's going to change absolutely everything. As, for example, young children only know their grandparents suffering with dementia. What does it mean for healthy adults who are caring for someone with disease to have all these years ahead of them and the relationships of marriage and love are corrupted? I think also there are also lessons, however, on the other side of this that we can learn from people with Alzheimer's. Uh, in, In the book, Us Against Alzheimer's, I wrote an essay about how visiting a former neighbor of mine who had dementia in a assisted living facility where her children had put her had radically transformed my life because the person with dementia and Alzheimer's has nothing but this moment now. And when you're living with a person or dealing with a person with dementia, that is where you have to be right now, this moment. There's no yesterday, there's no past, there's no future. And because of the immediacy and the almost zen-like quality of the relationship that you have with them, you learn profound lessons in patience, in presence, in accepting what is. And many of the caregivers that I interviewed and that write in the book, Us Against Alzheimer's, talk about this other side of the disease, sort of the light behind the darkness that they had not expected. Uh, So that we're finding also that people, even with the disease, they are still present. They're still very, very present. And uh, there's, there's things like art therapy, for example. They've done music and painting with people who have Alzheimer's and dementia and found that those artistic expressions make them more present, enhance their memory, and even their ability to speak. So there's a lot that we don't know about the disease, but there's a lot that we're going to learn. But we are nowhere near prepared for what's going to really happen. Yeah, that's um, a really sobering thought. Um, And I'm wondering if there are other cultures, maybe around the world, who are doing things differently when it comes to Alzheimer's care. I don't know if you have any awareness, but do you know of any different... Yeah, I know in some of the Scandinavian countries, they have developed areas where people with Alzheimer's and dementia live that are like these communities, these sort of like wide open safe space communities where, for example, there's no doors and the people are basically just free to live in these environments and they're basically safe. I mean, that is, you don't have to worry about them wandering away because the place is so big and they're so protected they can wander safely. Um, there are communities where they're putting, in, and this is all overseas, where they're putting a lot of people with dementia and they're changing the way rooms are designed to accommodate the needs. So there are other cultures that are doing a lot of thinking about the architecture that is required for someone who has this disease. You know, maybe may they need to be in a cramped space with rooms and doors, but just, you know, an open space. But we're not there yet. We're we're sort of watching that from afar. 
And do you know if the does the United States have a higher incidence of Alzheimer's than other countries, or is that is it kind well, of well? No, no. Fifty million people around the world have Alzheimer's. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you know if there are, like I've recently heard about, like uh, fasting and other all treatments. Of those that, old, yeah, yeah. That all there of those things, are, right. That there there's, are things there's that can a lot prevent of, it. There's a lot of alternative treatments. Just you know, Alzheimer's is just like everything. If it's some for example, when my husband had cancer many years ago, he used a combination of radiation and chemotherapy, but he also did some fasting. And so he used a combination of alternative treatments and the traditional medical treatments, and he he beat it. So you will find people who say, oh, well, I did this and my mother's. For example, Charles Ogletree, the Harvard law professor, has Alzheimer's, and his wife had put him on a special diet with a nutritionist that for a while had a profoundly positive effect on him. I mean, he still had Alzheimer's, but he was more present. He was more alert. He was more um, connected to people. And for a while, this special diet worked, but then he relapsed. And so we do not have a cure. We Even the alternative diets or treatments do not cure the disease or stall it in any meaningful way. There's research now being done on the development of medication that could potentially stall the growth of the symptoms, but we're still a long way, a long way from that. And is there anything that you're aware of that can prevent the disease? I mean, you mentioned before somewhat of lifestyle, you know, in terms of the African-American community being, you know, exposed to certain toxins and other stressors. But is there anything that you're aware of from your research that could prevent it? Or is there some research that is in that area? Is it, Or is the research all about a cure as opposed to prevention, if possible? Well, the research is all over the place. The research is prevention, cure, and right now, most of the researchers are simply saying the, the most important thing to do is the very simple thing to do, live a healthy life. Now, some families have the Alzheimer's gene. I've talked to families where five, six, seven people have developed Alzheimer's. But the fact that you have the Alzheimer's gene in your family does not necessarily mean that you will develop Alzheimer's. People have asked me, well, would you get, if you had Alzheimer's in your family, would you get a test that showed that you had the predisposition? And I've asked researchers who work in the field about this, and they've said they wouldn't even bother with it. One, because the test is not foolproof. And secondly, there's a psychological impact of getting a test that tells you you are going to get this disease when it's probably more effective to go on and live a very healthy life. And the benefits of exercise, movement, having a very wide circle of friends and connections that keep you engaged in life, learning something new, um, managing your diabetes, managing your high blood pressure. Those sound like very simple, ordinary things, but they're very powerful antidotes that can beat back the diminishment of your brain over time or stall the onset of Alzheimer's. So that no, there's no drug that can prevent it or thing that can cure it, 
But everyone that I've ever talked to in the field who's a researcher has said exercise, movement, a good diet, sleep. Those are the things that keep your brain healthy. And you say, well, look at Charles Ogletree. Look at Lanny Guineer. Look at these brilliant people who got it. Well, but we don't know everything that was going on in their bodies. All we know is that they were brilliant people who had a powerful impact on society. We don't know what their medical files said. Right. We right. don't know what other health challenges they were dealing with. We don't know whether they had Alzheimer's in their family. So um, it's a very confounding thing, but that's what I do. I, you know, I, I just try to get enough sleep. I exercise and I eat healthy, you know. But you, And see, that sounds like so simple. But the fact is that most Americans don't do that. Most of us work in hermetically sealed offices, eight hours a day, under enormous amount of stress. We leave those jobs and go home to stress. We eat fast food. You know, many Black people live in food deserts where they can't even buy a vegetable if they had a million dollars. So there are all these challenges that many Americans face just trying to do those simple, ordinary things. Breathe healthy, get enough sleep, eat a good diet and exercise. Those four things, which sound very easy for me to say as a middle-class successful person, are very challenging for many, many Americans to achieve. Yeah. We've talked about the African-American and the Latino community. Has there been any research specifically on the Asian-American community and how Alzheimer's is showing up in that community? Well, that's beginning. Right now in the United States, I mean, you wouldn't believe, for example, it's only within the last five or six years that statistics on African-Americans with Alzheimer's were actually really included in the mix around the discussion of Alzheimer's. So it's like the medical industrial complex had to get to blacks. Oh, and then there's Latinos. Oh, oh, okay. You see, so each demographic is recognized in their turn rather than being seen as a part of the big pie. Wow. That's Unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> Sadly, it's not too yeah, surprising, yeah. but it's just, you know, it still hurts when you hear something like that. Yeah, so yeah. so tell me a little bit about Us Against Alzheimer's. You know, I was reading, I think I was only on like page, I don't know, the first essay. And I was kind of, I, I was not crying of, I was crying. I mean, this is a really powerful book. Tell us a little bit about what your intentions and the impact that you hope it has and, and what it's about. Well, it it grew out of my continuing desire to sort of tell new stories. And as I said, there's a story about Alzheimer's that we know, the difficult, hard story. But then there's the story of the way that caring for someone with a disease can be transformative, deeply powerful, deeply spiritual. And that's a story that very often is not told. And the organization Us Against Alzheimer's, which is a international, national group that's based in Washington, D.C. and is dedicated to finding a cure, but also to making sure that women and African-Americans and Latinos and other groups that tend not to be part of the discourse and, and the whole trials and all of this, that they're definitely included. So I was very impressed with their work. So I wanted to do something to support their work. So The book is a book that basically supports that organization so that 
all the profits from the book go to support the research and other work that Us Against Alzheimer's, the organization, is doing. So basically, I wanted stories about Alzheimer's. Actually, it's a collection of short stories, fiction, as well as personal essays. And the authors are everybody from award-winning writers like Edwidge Dondekat to caregivers who are just writing about the experience of caring for a loved one, but writing in a deeply moving way. I'm very pleased that the book is multicultural. There is an essay. There are essays from writers who are Indian, Haitian, Trinidadian, and Dominican Republic. So it was important to me to make the book multicultural because this is a disease that is global. And you said, I love it that it's stories of family, love, and faith. That's the subtitle. And it really does talk about, um, I mean, it showcases the effect that Alzheimer's has on obviously the person, the family, and the community. Again, it's not an individual disease by any stretch of the imagination. And you said that the proceeds for the book all go to the Us Against Alzheimer's Foundation or organization? The the organization, right, right. And they're they're doing um, really great work. And as I say, they're connected globally with researchers and scientists. And they have a summit every year, a three-day summit here in Washington, D.C. And they bring, for example, people with Alzheimer's who are living with the disease, but who are still active in their communities, who are active fighting the disease as part of the of the conference. And they talk about what it is like to live with Alzheimer's and to be an activist finding a cure. One of the most powerful essays in the book is an excerpt from Greg O'Brien's book on Pluto. And he's a journalist who has been living with Alzheimer's for the last nine years. And he has written beautifully about the disease from the inside of what it really feels like to live with a disease that is shrinking your cognitive ability. And yet he remains an activist. He he speaks, but he does that with an enormous amount of support from his family. And he couldn't do the work he does without their support. Another powerful piece is by uh, Evans Hopkins. And he was he's a writer who spent 20 years in jail. And while he was in jail, his mother and father visited him regularly. And when he got out of jail, they were elderly and he found himself having to care for them. And his mother had Parkinson, his father had Alzheimer's. And it was just this crushing experience for him. But one of the most powerful things he says is that when I was in prison, they visited me every week. They honored me. I could do no less yeah. but care for them. Yeah. And so um, the stories are, even if you don't have any connection to Alzheimer's, if you just want to read stories about the human spirit, it's a great read. It really is. It really is. I was. It's not something you necessarily just pick up for light reading, obviously, but it really, the stories, first of all, they're beautifully written, but they're also, again, it's like a multicultural anthology of this unifying experience. Um, I wanted to ask you to talk about this one line where um, I think it's in the, just in the jacket copy, but it says that Alzheimer's is a disease that kills a loved one twice. What do you mean by that? Well, it kills them in that the person that you knew 
the mother that you knew, the father that you knew, the husband that you knew, that person gradually dies and becomes someone living with the disease. And then there is the physical death so that there's the gradual death of the personality of the person that you knew. And then there's the physical death. But in between that, there is the development of a new person. Uh, for example, I mean, I just went to visit a friend of mine, a lawyer who was very prominent here in Washington, D.C. And he's about my age, I'm 70, and he has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And it started out as aphasia, which is a form of dementia where you have hard, a hard time speaking then that becomes a hard time speaking and remembering. Well, we went to visit him and uh, his sister was there with him and all on the table were pictures and notes of a book. He had talked to me about wanting to write a memoir of his life when he realized that he was developing disease. And we finished one draft of it, but we didn't finish the whole book. But he has a pro- his, his project now is that he talks about this book so that as we sat there uh, having a conversation, sometimes he was in, sometimes he was out, sometimes he was laughing appropriately, sometimes he was laughing inappropriately, but this is who he was. This is who he is. And he's not dead. He is simply a new version of himself a constantly changing, evolving version of himself. But the old person that he was is dying and there will be the physical death. But as I say, in between, there is this other person and it's the other person that the caregivers and family have the hardest time accepting because they want to have the old person back and they never will. Oh, yes. It's so difficult and so misunderstood. And that's why, I mean, again, just reading your two books in the last, I mean, I had the pleasure of reading The Wide Circumference of Love, your novel, in my class. I assigned it as a reading assignment and then reading Us Against Alzheimer's. I feel like I've been baptized by fire, if you will, um, just really getting into this. And I mean, I there was so much that I didn't know and didn't realize. And again, I feel like the impact on the family and the communities. And just like you were saying, even the global impact, like we're not ready. And I think that obviously people should be more aware of what Alzheimer's really is, that it's not just, oh, you're getting old and kind of getting forgetful, or, you know, that's just part of what is aging. What do you want people to take away from the book, Us Against Alzheimer's, from the wide circumference of love, from your journalism on Alzheimer's? Like if there was like one thing, the one takeaway that people did have from this work that you've been doing as a self-proclaimed Alzheimer's activist, what is it that you want people to take away? Well, I'm, I'm going to say more than one thing. That's, uh, <laughs> that's fine. It's, it's that this, this is a disease that is real, present, and has a, it's going to have a powerful impact on our lives and our society. And also, I'd like people to actually come away with an awareness of the continuing humanity of the people with Alzheimer's and the need for support for caregivers. So those three things. One, just to know about the disease. Many people do not know how impactful this disease is. Two, that the caregivers need our love, our support. If you have somebody in your neighborhood 
who's living with someone who has a disease. Stop by and give them a break. Tell them they can go to a movie. They can go get their hair done, that you'll sit with mom or dad. It won't be that difficult. I know when I first started doing research, I thought it would be so scary and so horrible to be in the presence of a person with dementia. Actually, the main fear is your fear. Once you accept their continuing humanity, it's not that scary. You're just dealing with another human being different than you, but you are connected by your humanity. And caregivers need our support. The people with Alzheimer's need our love and we need to know about the disease. Thank you so much, Marita. I feel like I learned so much today from you and also, of course, from your books, all of your work. Can you please tell people how they can continue to follow your work, where they can find your books? We'll, of course, put links on the website, but just let them know how to best uh, stay in touch. Well, I have a website, www.maritagolden.com, and you can go to that website and you can download a free chapter from both books, from The Wide Circumference of Love and Us Against Alzheimer's. I'm not a big social media person. I sort of lurk around the edges. <laughs> so Probably smarter. If you, really, if you really want to know what I'm doing, it's best to, to get on my, my mailing list, my email list. Excellent, excellent. Right. And yes, I am on uh, Marita's email list and she does send out great email um, updates and information, but she doesn't overdo it. No spammy stuff. So check out her website. And thank you so much again for being on My American Melting Pot. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. That was really a powerful discussion. And these are my takeaways. One, that Alzheimer's affects more than just a single person. It affects caregivers. And as Marita said, and as it's shown in her books, that caregivers really need all of our help and support. And two, while there isn't a cure for Alzheimer's at this point, we do know that living a healthy life can perhaps mitigate the chances of us getting Alzheimer's. That eating well, sleeping well, even being social in our lives can perhaps do much to keep our brains healthy. And point number three, I never realized that there was such an inequity in who was contracting Alzheimer's. I didn't realize that African-Americans and Latinos were more likely to get Alzheimer's than white people. It doesn't even seem to make sense, but again, This is America. This is racism. And racism does affect us even when it comes to our health. But rather than dwelling on the fact that I'm an African-American woman and am twice as likely to get Alzheimer's as my white counterparts, I'd rather focus on point number two, which is to try to live my life as healthy as possible. I hope that everybody who listened to today's episode feels like they learned something about Alzheimer's today. And I do really recommend reading both of Marita's books, Us Against Alzheimer's and The Wide Circumference of Love. Both of them are really easy ways to learn without feeling pressure or stress. And you'll definitely come away with not necessarily a sense of doom and foreboding, but a sense of hope and optimism. Thank you for listening to episode 22 of My American Melting Pot. If you enjoyed the show, and I hope you did, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just so you know, our next episode is going to be our anniversary episode. Yay! And I'll be reading some of the reviews that the show has received on the air. 
So get those in so maybe your words can be part of the fun. And don't forget, you can find the show notes for today's episode on myamericanmeltingpot.com, where you can also find fresh new melting pot content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can also follow me on Instagram at myamericanmeltingpot or come chat with us on the My American Melting Pot Facebook page. I'd love to see you there so we can continue the conversation. Episode 22 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community. And always remember to live your life in color.